You're listening to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive leaders in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, author, and advisor. Learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. So this is a special summer season four, where I talk about some of our most requested topics that are all in my new book, How to Be an Ally, available for pre-order now at ally.cc book. I also answer questions from our live audience. A special thank you to First Tech Federal Credit Union for sponsoring this episode. Today's topic is why empathy and allyship matter in the workplace. So I'm gonna talk about the role of allyship within diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll talk some more about empathy. We talked a little about empathy in the last episode as well. Talk about what people want from allies. We've, we've done some research there, so we'll share that. And then also the business case for allyship. So hopefully you can take this back to your company to get budget, to do more allyship work for those of you who are actively working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So just briefly to describe myself for anybody who is listening to the podcast, I'm a white woman with long red hair, uh, getting longer and longer in COVID, but I'm going to get a catch soon, I think. Wearing a, a white shirt with some turquoise flower pattern and black and white glasses. So you all know who I am. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler. I'm the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, and I've spent my life really cultivating the skills and experience create behavior change and change organizational culture. That's what I do. So for the last eight years, I've really been doing that work specifically in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I do have a big announcement before I go deep into the subject. I'm really excited about this. My book, How to Be an Ally, is now available for pre-order. So please do check it out. I've been thinking about this since 2015 or so. I've been writing for the last two and a half years. It's a big deal for me, and I'm really excited. I can't wait for to be out in the world, giving people actionable steps they can take to be a better ally. It's really going deep into what you can do as an ally and um, how you can make a difference in your workplace, in your industry. So, And it's with McGraw-Hill, is our, my publisher. They've been amazing. Please pre-order it if you're able to. It, it does make a huge difference, apparently, in the, in the book's success, the more pre-orders there are. So uh, I didn't know that. Learning a lot about the publishing world. So please do share it also. And, and if you do want to order any books in bulk, I know companies like to do book buys for their team or their company or their school, just email me and I'll make sure you get to the right folks for a discounted rate. Okay. So ally.cc slash book, you, there you can pre-order. So appreciate y'all. So for the next four episodes, I'm going to share some of what's in the book, give you a taste of it, and also give you some important ways that you can really make a difference as an ally in your workplace. Some, some specifics here today is focused on why empathy and allyship matter in the workplace. Next time, so in two weeks, is understanding and correcting our biases and then for July, we'll really focus on microaggressions, recognizing and overcoming microaggressions. And, and that takes a lot of work. And, and, and so we're going to spend two episodes on that. So one of the biggest things that I have learned, really the number one thing is over doing diversity, equity, inclusion over the years with hundreds of companies is that there's no magic wand that creates diversity, equity, and inclusion. Change happens one person at a time, one act at a time, one word at a time. And it is human nature to want quick solutions. Um, often companies come to us 
when they're new to diversity, equity, and inclusion, believing that one training is going to fix their problems. But that's not how change works. There's no training in and of itself that will magically fix the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And also, we work in the tech industry a lot. And in the, in the world today, in general, we have a tendency to believe that technology can fix most of our problems in our workplaces. But there's no technology that fixes this either. It really is you and I taking one step at a time. There are some technology solutions working on pieces of the diversity, equity, and inclusion puzzle. And there's some training that can help people learn specific solutions to creating more equitable systems, more equitable processes, language, and structures. But the real change happens when each of us become part of the solution. That's where allyship comes in. It's you and me leading with empathy, changing how we do what we do, how we make people feel, working together to recognize and correct deep imbalances and opportunity that begins it began centuries ago, it began um, 500 years ago in this country, in the United States. And it really takes a critical mass of allies to fundamentally shift all of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's when we create stronger and happier workplaces, companies, and industries together. So laying some quick foundational definitions, diversity is bringing humans with different backgrounds to the table. So that means you're hiring diverse people, you're inviting people with diverse identities to meetings and to events. And there's diversity in your boardrooms, as well as your classrooms. If you're in education, when you look around the room, and more important, when you look at the data, you see that there's a broad range of people, a broad, diverse range of people of different genders, races, ethnicities, disabilities, religions, ages, sexual orientations, and lots of other aspects of somebody's identity and background. And of course, keeping in mind that many people have intersectional identities. So one person can have several aspects of their identity that are underrepresented. And that also compounds barriers to opportunity and access. So it also adds to the biases and microaggressions that people might experience, which we'll be talking about in the next episode. So intersectionality is really important here as well. So inclusion. Inclusion is inviting humans to speak, diverse humans to speak at that table, encouraging and supporting them to lead. And also, it's not enough for somebody to really be at the table. They also need to be there leading at the table. Also might need to rebuild the table, perhaps, if it's not really built for them. So sometimes inclusion means collaboratively redesigning the table together. And we'll talk about inclusion a little bit more later in this episode. So equity, equity is correcting justice and fairness while addressing historical privilege and oppression. So people and companies that address equity, they acknowledge that throughout history to the present, some people have had more privilege while others have been, other people have been oppressed and treated unfairly through our institutions, through our cultures, through our workplaces, through our uh, criminal justice systems, throughout our lives. Um, and this means that we also often have to learn and unlearn and relearn what we've been taught as well. So allyship, good allies, they learn, they show empathy, and they take action. They take action to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so this is our role, is, is really working to address all of these things. Uh, we use our power and our influence to create positive change for our colleagues, for our friends, for our neighbors. We recognize when someone isn't in the room, who should be in that room, and then bring them into that room open that door. And not just in the room, but at the table, rebuilding that table together if it wasn't made for them, leading conversations, letting them, opening the door, opening the, the table for them to lead. And then also 
helping correct injustice and unfairness and addressing historical privilege and oppression, right? All of these things. Allyship is learning by reading, by observing, listening, hearing other people's lived experiences, stepping in, stepping up, sometimes stepping back so that our colleagues can thrive. And it's also leading the change, really taking action to correct the unfairness and injustice and removing the barriers so everyone can rise. So there are many terms out there that go hand in hand with allyship. Um, some people will say that we need to go beyond allyship to being comrades, collaborators, co-conspirators, accomplices, and advocates. Um, there's a lot of terms out there. And to me, the term is not as important as the action, right? All of these to me are forms of allyship and each one is important. The most important thing is that this is not passive, it's active. Allies aren't bystanders, allies do the work. So in terms of learning, we're, we're just starting June here, Pride Month, celebrating LGBTQIA rights and honoring the Stonewall riots 52 years ago on uh, June 28th, 1969, which was a catalyst for the, the gay rights movement and led by several amazing people, including Marsha P. Johnson, who is a, was a Black trans woman, and also Sylvia Rivera, a Latina trans woman, was also a leader in the movement. So really important to recognize that people's intersectional identities and the, that history there. Lots more to learn if you don't know. So please go into each of these. Uh, Juneteenth is on, on the 19th, honoring the day in 1965 in Galveston, Texas, where the Union Army finally freed Black people who were enslaved two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Loving Day on June is the anniversary of the 1967 U.S. Supreme Court decision, which struck down uh, laws against uh, interracial marriage. And of course, I'm, I'm very grateful for this and, and, and all of these things, actually. Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 is also celebrated here in June where Native Indigenous people were granted citizenship in the U.S. People weren't able to vote until much later, uh, until 33 years later. All, all of that is kind of ridiculous, right, when you were on their land and they shouldn't have to fight for citizenship, but there it is. Um, that is oppression. Caribbean Heritage Month and Puerto Rican Day also this month. And then also Helen Keller's birthday is on uh, June 27th as well. So it's an important month for many people and a good opportunity to really learn and learn why all of these things are important for our friends and neighbors and colleagues. And then again, go beyond learning to showing empathy and taking action. So while allyship can feel complex sometimes, and um, we can get overwhelmed with the, all the different things we can do, must do, should do. Above all, people describe good allies to be trustworthy, helpful, honest, supportive, loyal, caring, kind, good listeners, all of these things that we all do and, and we have this in us. It's kind of being a good human. I would describe this as being a good parent, being a good, good partner, a good neighbor, a good colleague. You know, people describe good allies as being caring and, and honest and trustworthy. A large and growing body of data also shows that while there's a business case for diversity, equity, inclusion, which we all know, well, most of us know, the business case shows that diverse and inclusive teams are more productive, more profitable, more innovative. That um, as the research deepens, it's also becoming clear that happiness and well-being are the key components of what produces those business outcomes. When people feel safe, when they feel valued and respected in an inclusive environment, that's when you get those important business outcomes. So as allies, you and I, we have a key role in this. We have, can impact that culture and make a difference for our colleagues, one action at a time. So 
some research that we have done on allyship at Change Catalyst. Looking at what people want from allies, we, we found 17 different themes in our research over the years. And then when people are actually asked to prioritize those, overwhelmingly, people want their allies to trust me, give me confidence and courage, and mentor me. And then followed by recommend me for an opportunity and take an action when somebody says or does something harmful to me. So that intervention. Women most frequently want allies to give them confidence and courage, where men prioritize trust, generally. People who are non-binary prioritize mentorship and recommendations for new opportunities. And then this something else that's interesting that we found is that when somebody has experienced discrimination in their career, their allyship priorities shift. They want allies to help build their confidence and to take action when somebody says or does something harmful. So in our research, Black respondents in the United States reported the highest rates of any race who experienced discrimination in their careers, 73%, compared to white colleagues, 46%. Then they are more likely to prioritize that allies learn about their biases and to take action when somebody says or does something harmful. And then on the, on the flip side, when Black people do have allies, it changes their feelings of safety in their workplace. So Black people in the United States are 70% more likely to feel safe in the workplace when they have allies. And that number grows the more allies that they have. And rates of workplace safety and belonging are very low for people with disabilities, people who are Indigenous, Black, Latinx, non-binary, and people from the MENA region. Indigenous people and people who are LGBTQIA+, generally want allies to take action when somebody does or says something harmful. People with disabilities also, they want allies to trust them and take action when somebody says or does something harmful to them. So we'll talk about that in our microaggression session a bit. And then, uh, you know, also immigrants and recent immigrants and people with disabilities also prioritize better understanding their identity. So there's, there's something important there too. So we broke this out in a lot of different ways in our upcoming allyship report too. So when that comes out, we'll share a lot more detail. Stay tuned for that. For those of you who are interested in, in all 17, how allies want people to help them. So the next on the list is amplify my voice or ideas, recognize my work or my accomplishments, educate themselves to be to better understand me or my identity, check in, listen to me, ensure I am paid and promoted fairly, learn about biases, hire me, help create a culture where I belong, advocate for change in my company, publicly protest, hire more people like me, and donate to programs. Those at the bottom there are pretty significantly lower than the top. And I, I do want to take a moment to reflect on that because over the last year since George Floyd was murdered, there have been a, a definitely an increase in the number of people who've come to allyship. And I would say a lot of what's happened over the last year is really externalizing allyship, protests, donating, hiring, even, and really prioritizing that. But that's pretty far down on this list. So what we see is that people want us to do the internal work, the harder work, often the personal work, often the harder work, so that we put our trust in people. We support them. We lift them up. We boost their confidence. We put ourselves out there a little bit, um, use our influence and networks to recommend people, take action when somebody harms them. We often gravitate toward the easy external stuff, but it's often the more difficult internal stuff that makes a bigger difference to people. It's really a lot of this is how you make people feel. Maya Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said 
People will forget what you did. People will never forget how you made them feel. Most of these that rise to the top are about how you make somebody feel. So some data here, 91% of people feel that allies have been valuable in their career. People with two or more allies are twice as likely to be satisfied with their job. Twice as likely. People with two or more allies are almost twice as likely to be satisfied with their work culture and to feel like they belong in their organization. So when allyship is encouraged in the workplace, training, for example, people actually want more encouragement of allyship in the workplace. It it actually rises. The more they have access to allyship training and encouragement, the more they want more. And then not surprisingly, people feel significantly safer and more like they belong when allyship is encouraged and when DEI in general, when diversity, equity, inclusion in general is a focus for the organization. And then one last statistic here is people with two or more allies are also 41% more likely to feel safe in their workplace. So allyship makes business sense as well as obviously makes human sense. So show empathy. The best allies I know, they listen, they learn, they act with empathy, right? Um, Allyship requires self-awareness, self-awareness of your own presence and perspective, your biases, microaggressions, as well as curiosity and openness to somebody else's perspective, really seeing them, appreciating them for their uniqueness, and then encouraged to respond and to show your empathy for them and their experience and, and to really take action. In season two, Kate Johnson, who's the president of Microsoft US, said that empathy is a superpower and is the common denominator for leaders and individual contributors in a successful organization and one that's high performing. You can learn more about how they at Microsoft are working and how Kate is leading that change in their company around building empathy. That's in episode 31. Uh, Psychologists Daniel Goleman and Paul Ekman came up with three types of empathy. So there's cognitive empathy, which is perspective taking. We intellectually understand somebody's experiences. And then emotional empathy, directly feeling. We emotionally understand somebody's experiences. And then compassionate empathy combines both. We understand, we feel, and we respond to somebody's experiences. This is essential for allyship. Um, We talked about this a bit in the last episode, uh, where cognitive empathy is insight, seeing their world, understanding their feelings, and then engaging, appreciating them without judgment, and communicating that understanding. I see you. I hear you. I care about what you shared. I'm going to take action. I'm just going to take a moment and pause and look at all these the, the comments for a second. Yeah, yeah, Andrea, the the top answers of what people want for allies, encompassing something that will help the individual, whereas the bottom encompasses changing the system, which is harder. That is true. That is true, absolutely. And I would say that there's there's multiple levels of allyship and layers of allyship for sure. And then I, I agree with you that attention to the individual takes real commitment to see that person. And I think in some ways it's harder than, than giving money or going to a protest for a day, right? It's, uh, it's really making that commitment to see somebody understand them, learn so that you can react and act appropriately. In episode six, Dr. Najiba Sayed said, it's important to cultivate genuine relationships with people of diverse backgrounds. We have to practice the muscle of empathy in small ways and in small conflict so that when a huge issue comes up, that muscle is exercised and you're ready to respond. So allyship is a muscle. You have to practice it. And 
I said this in the last episode, but I want to go a little bit deeper that if showing empathy doesn't come easy for you, it's okay. It, it actually, there are studies that show it can be learned. And I am a living example of it being learned, being able to learn it. As a young girl, I grew up in a family that really didn't discuss or show feelings for each other. It made it really difficult for me to have or show empathy for other people. I approach people intellectually rather than emotionally and often missed opportunities to be there for them, for friends and family when they when it really mattered. And so in my late teens and early 20s, when I moved to college, I actively worked to cultivate my empathy. I did it through, through reading. I took a lot of classes in, in college, different subjects around different cultures and uh, literature from different countries, film from different countries. And I also learned how facial expressions and body language convey emotion. Paul Ekman is a really great resource there. And then I got to know myself because a lot of this is about getting to know yourself too. I did that through writing and, and later meditation as well. And then asking my questions of myself, asking questions of other people and really deeply listening. So over time, not all at once, but over time, the awkwardness of sharing emotions and Building those emotional connections gave way to a passion for it. <laughs> and flash forward, here I am in a career of empathy building. Through filmmaking, I started in filmmaking and then social marketing and then behavior change and change management and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So now I train and coach leaders to build empathy in themselves and across teams. So it can definitely be learned. Meet yourself where you are, work to grow and show your empathy. And in that exercising will make a difference. Your empathy muscle will 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 grow. And then keep in mind when you we have conflict when we're interacting with people who are different from us, different races, different ethnicities, different genders, there's studies show that it is harder to have empathy. It's often harder to have empathy. So when we're stressed as well, it often reduces our empathy. So we have to work harder in those situations to have that empathy. Maybe change your perception of in-group and out-group. And we'll talk about that in the next episode a bit too. And but really remind yourself to have empathy in those situations. So there's a lot more in the in the book about building empathy, but that gives you a taste of it. Oprah, of course, I have to quote Oprah, says, leadership is about empathy. It's about having the ability to relate to and connect with people for the purpose of inspiring and empowering their lives. So empathy is a crucial leadership skill. Um, and more and more so, people with empathetic colleagues and leaders report more effective collaboration and creativity, higher team morale, better performance. This is the business case, right? Demonstrating empathy for each other also increases employee engagement, job satisfaction, retention, customer satisfaction and loyalty, business growth and profitability. So all, all of those are definitely business cases for really building empathy in your organization. And yet, we're often missing out on empathy. 72% of CEOs say the current state of empathy in the workplace needs to change. And that same study found that 96% of people in the tech industry feel their colleagues have a difficult time demonstrating empathy. So we have work to do in the tech industry. <laughs> and considering the impact the tech products have in the world, this lack of that empathy can have a huge negative impact on a lot of our lives, right? So... Companies that focus on inclusion, along with diversity programs, they benefit more from those, that business case, right? At Change Catalyst, we call these the stages of inclusion. It's our framework based on years of doing this work, interviewing diversity, equity, inclusion professionals, analyzing the research. We came up with the stages of inclusion here. So it really begins with stage one. I feel welcome walking in the door. And then 
Stage two, I feel safe to be who I am and to share my ideas and experiences. Stage three, I'm engaged with my team and actively contributing to our successes. Stage four, I'm committed to being here for a while. The company is also committed to me as well. And then stage five, I belong here. I'm valued for my unique experiences and can become who I want to be here. It's a continuum. People slide up and down depending on their experiences at any given time. And many companies focus on stage one. I feel welcome. They're really bringing diverse people in the door. But if you're not working on making them feel safe once they get there, it can become a revolving door, right? So we as allies have a role in each of these stages. Um, Little things we can do in our daily interactions can make a big difference in how somebody feels along the path of inclusion. So I'll just share a few here and then we'll jump to questions. So stage one, I feel welcome to walk in the door. The company website, messaging, vision, the values resonate with me. People seem to care about my presence. So I have a good experience in the hiring process and the onboarding process speaks to my needs. How are you making people feel welcome in your, in your words, in your emails, in your Slack conversations or your internet conversations and in person as well? Um, having an ERG where they, where they know they can go somewhere where they feel like they belong, right? Giving women the floor in meetings. Yeah, I think that that kind of goes into welcoming and also engagement as well. Julie says, learning a few signs or words in another language relevant to new hires or current employees who are multilingual. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So some questions to think about here. How are you making people feel welcome? How are you showing you care about them? How are you helping people when they first come on board, um, when they first come to the company? How are you helping them integrate and and learn about the culture and the benefits and and uh, helping them navigate and then helping in the hiring process. Uh, are you helping in the hiring process to become, for it to become more inclusive? Are you making, making changes there? So two, I feel safe. So I feel safe to be who I am, share my ideas and experiences. I don't have to cover parts of my identity. I don't have to code switch. I'm not harassed or bullied. I don't face regular microaggressions. And if I do face any of these, I know where to report them. And I'm confident that appropriate action will be taken if I do report them. So lots of research here around psychological safety, and it's the foundation for inclusion. Without safety, you can't get to full engagement, commitment, and belonging, right? It's the building block. So social scientist Amy Edmondson has done a lot of work on psychological safety. She says it's a climate in which people are comfortable expressing and being themselves. That's where it starts, right? So I can express and be myself. I can take risks. I can make mistakes and share concerns. But you need this for innovation, right? I feel confident to speak up. My colleagues value my unique skills and talents. My colleagues trust and respect me. Yeah. What else are you all doing around building a safe space? Have you thought about this much? Are you working on psychological safety? I think, Brian, I think you said this for... um, for the last one, but I, I do think recognizing people for their ideas and not letting others take them as their own, that actually goes into safety, right? Um, I'm safe to express my ideas knowing that I'm going to have attribution. Leva uh, says being patiently open when people don't have the same communication style. Yeah, absolutely. That cultural intelligence that a couple of you hit on, that Leva you hit on, and then also uh, Julie, Julie talked about this as well. Cultural intelligence can be a key piece of this as well. 
So how are you showing trust? How are you allowing colleagues to take risks, helping boost confidence, showing appreciation for their skills and their expertise? All things to think about in terms of building a more psychologically safe team and company. So stage three, engaged. So I'm engaged with my team, actively contributing to my team's success. I'm rewarded for my accomplishments and motivated to improve my work and increase the company's overall success. I understand the process for promotion. So that transparency there, uh, my manager cares about my growth and gives me regular feedback. My ideas are valued and I contribute to innovation. So if you're a manager, engagement is key for you. Obviously you need to work on that first step of, of psychological safety and then engagement. Catalyst found that 45% of employees' experiences of inclusion are explained by their manager's inclusive leadership behaviors. So yeah, Brian says, I hear from women speak on our allyship calls that they have to pick their battles when pushing back on management where microaggressions occur. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to uh, psychological safety for a minute. How do we have to pick our battles? Because it takes a lot of energy and some professional risk as well sometimes. So yeah, I appreciate that. So engagement. So Julie says regular check-ins. Brian says middle management is the sweet spot for, for the culture to change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Andrea says not just in meetings, no, so not just meetings, inclu inclusive meetings, but also team activities. If you want to go to lunch, are you including those that have culture-based food requirements? Yeah, and perhaps, you know, don't do all of your team uh, extracurricular activities after hours um, so that everybody can be a part of that as well, including parents and caregiver, other caregivers. Managers creating a culture of inclusion and allyship. Michelle says, asks, would staying informed about current issues that affect coworkers and talking about them come in here? Yes, absolutely. This is where it would come in. And a few episodes back, we talked with Tito about ways that, that she worked internally around that and what she wanted from allies when she was really hurting and the Asian community has been hurting throughout the last year plus, year and a half almost. So I encourage you to, to listen to that episode if you haven't yet too, and kind of see what she wanted because there's it's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. So, so questions to ask yourself around engagement are, are you helping people grow in their career? Are you showing that you care about your colleagues' well-being? And uh, Michelle, that was a perfect example. Are you helping meetings become more inclusive? Are you helping events become more inclusive? Can your colleagues rely on you for doing what you say you're going to do? And are you really communicating and communicating transparently so that people, again, can rely on you and, and know what's happening, knowing what's happening with the project? Great. Thank you all for, for your contributions here. Appreciate it. So step four, I am committed. So managers and leadership teams have a big role here. The further you get, the more management and leadership really do need to step up. So those of you who are leaders and managers, really take note of commitment and belonging. All of it, but especially as it gets further along in the stages of inclusion. I'm committed to being at this company for a while, and my company is committed to me. Leadership cares about me and my growth. I have opportunities to become a leader myself. I'm fairly compensated and promoted. I contribute to my colleagues' success and our company culture overall through mentorship, sponsorship, and other ways. So I have opportunities to lead. My leadership cares about me. Our company and my leadership team shows that they are committed to and they're continuously growing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Anything else here that you all can think of that you're doing around commitment in particular? Jerrica asks, do we trust that HR is managing pay fairly? 
we actually put for this level of allyship and commitment to employees? I would say trust is a hard word, but I would say ask them, <laughs> are they doing uh, pay equity audits and promotion equity audits? And if they're not in, yeah, as an ally, I encourage them to do so. You can definitely do that. You know, they may not know that it's an issue. And, and so it may take several people, it may take an ERG, a couple of ERGs to really push for it too. You know, Back in 2013, 2014, Tracy Chow and a couple of other people really looked at pay equity at Google. And they did some really, really cool stuff where they they worked to kind of tabulate it and then and then showed it to management. And um, you know, that's the way that it can really make a huge difference. It is delicate for sure. But the more open we are about it, the more equitable it is, right? There's a few companies out there that, that don't do negotiation during the hiring process, and that can level that as well. But yeah, there's there's lots of different ways that you can handle it, but it's important to handle it because it has been inequitable for so long. Um, it needs to change. If you're involved in the hiring process, you can certainly advocate for fair pay in that process as well. So questions around commitment, questions to ask yourself, are you giving people opportunities to lead? Are you advocating for your colleagues to be promoted or to get a raise? Are you advocating for pay equity, for promotion equity? Are you mentoring? Are you sponsoring? And if you are a manager or a leader, how are you really showing that you care about your team members' growth? How are you doing that? Hey, okay, and then step five, I belong. I belong here. I'm seen and valued for my unique experiences. I'm proud of my accomplishments at the organization and I'm connected to my colleagues and, their, and to the leadership of the company as well. I'm supported in my own growth and I can become who I want to be. I am also given opportunities to give back and we're all working together to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, yeah. So what are you all doing in terms of belonging and really looking at how to help people feel valued to help them become who they want to be at your company. Kevin says listening sessions. Yeah. And Andrea says book clubs with the allyship groups. Oh, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Working with our HR team for DNI metrics. Yeah. Uh, more mentoring. Absolutely, Crystal. So ask yourself in a round of belonging things to ask yourself are you sharing and celebrating the wins? everybody's wins. Are you making meaningful connections with your colleagues? Are you working to give back? And are you working to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion together? Awesome. And Crystal says, working with HR to focus on women in leadership too. How can we improve? Absolutely. And, and of course, I'm sure you know this, but making sure that it's all women, that is often historically when companies work on, on women in leadership, they often focus on just white women. So it's really important to make sure that it's intersectional. Andrea says, I'm going to protests and rallies and hearing the stories of those with diverse voices to try to understand their viewpoint and have empathy for their experience. Awesome, cool. This is great. Douglas says, ask people in one-on-ones, how would you rank your current project for being a good fit for you on a scale of one to 10? And, and then ask them why they ranked it low or high and in, in the cases where the score is low, offer some initial thoughts on how you can advocate or change the situation for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes people are not on the project, right projects or the right teams even for their personal growth and well-being. That's a great question to ask to, to kind of get at that and, and find some solutions. That's really cool. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. 
Madeline sharing a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, culture of the, of the mind must be subservient to the heart. Very relevant to the point of empathy. Yeah, yeah. Leva is uh, writing to state representatives about workplace issues like childcare. Fantastic. Yeah, actually, the, the EEOC, um, for those of you in the US, the EEOC is a good resource for advocating as well. They, they're doing a lot of great work. Okay, so pre-order is now available for my new book. It comes out September 14th, and please pre-order if you are so willing and are able to and, and share this as well. And again, if, if you want to do a bulk order, just reach out to us and I'll make sure that you get in touch with the right folks to get the, the bulk discount. It matters. It makes a big difference in this, the long-term success of the book, this, this pre-order time. So thank you. And I'm not good at self-promotion, so, so appreciate you all. And then and just a reminder of what's coming up next. So in two weeks, we have Understanding and Correcting Our Biases. And then July, we'll be really focused on microaggressions. And we'll go deep into the different types of microaggressions and, and how to interrupt them in yourselves. And then also we'll talk about some micro-intervention strategies and, and solutions there. So my question to you all, leaving here is what will you do differently? What action will you take after hearing all the things that we talked about today? What action will you take? And then we'll see you in two weeks for our next show. Again, thank you to First Tech Federal Credit Union and Interpreter Now for their partnership. Really appreciate them. Couldn't do this without them. And please do share share this. Share, share with your colleagues. You can find all of our previous episodes at ally.cc. And, uh, and then find this episode on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube and like it and subscribe. That helps us too. So I appreciate you all. Have an amazing week. And we'll see you in two weeks. For more learning resources about this episode's topic, visit changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media using hashtag allyship podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. It's produced by Juliet Roy and Be Your Change Media with the team at Change Catalyst, Renzo Santos, Araya April, Sally Moiwewa, and Emily Moss. Thank you for listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.